Episode 96 of No Guitar Is Safe featuring the wildly versatile, prolific, and incredibly inspiring cat. Your friend and mine, Mark Bonilla, is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player. Play better. Sound better. No Guitar Is Safe. My dad started taking guitar lessons when I was like 10, and he would be in there trying to figure stuff out, and I'd be listening to him through the bedroom door, and I picked out the melodies, and they go, Dad, was this what you were trying to do? And he'd go, yeah, I think the wrong guy's taking lessons, so we couldn't afford two people taking lessons. So I said, do you want to take lessons? And I said, yeah. Man, oh man, what's up? You have fun when you have a helicopter. You have some adventures, that's for sure. So yeah, I landed the helicopter over in the valley at the great guitarist's house, Mark Bonilla, at his place. Went to his home studio. A lot of you have been requesting Mark, so it was great to finally deliver that. And he finally delivered a new solo album, which you are hearing. And Mark's new solo album is called Celluloid Debris, and you can check it out on his website markboniamusic.com that's m-a-r-c-b-o-n-i-l-l-a ia like quesadilla come on people and I'll be playing some more tracks from that and we'll get into this and some of his other stuff and also we will get into of course the things he has done with the great keyboardist the late great Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer wow what a deep relationship they had and also Mark's relationship with Ronnie Montrose, someone I'm also a huge fan of. Wow, I mean, it was really cool. But the other part too is like after this, after this interview, you just never know where these things will take you when you're doing in-person podcast interviews, you know. So I go over to his house, we jam out, and that's all great. And we get into his whole life, man, how he did it, how he became an established film and TV composer and session musician. And of course, he's a great singer as well. Mark's one of those guys, man. He just does so many different things. But also, so he's like, afterwards, he's like, hey, man, let's go grab some sushi. I'm like, cool, let's go out to lunch. We do it. And we're talking, he's like, seen any good movies lately? I'm like, well, I just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie. Which I thought was good, not Pulp Fiction, but I enjoyed it. Kind of a slow burn and uh, really takes you back to that night 50 years ago when the Manson clan kind of crept out of their, their camp at Spawn Ranch. And it turns out it was 49 years and 364 days to the day that we did this interview, me and Mark, and... I've always had a fascination with that because I think, you know, you got the Altamont Festival where somebody tragically was killed. That was with the Rolling Stones and Jefferson Airplane, etc. in California. And you also have Manson. And those things, I think, sort of ended the 60s as we knew it. Not that I was there. The end of that era of psychedelic like i don't know it was a wake-up call so it's fascinating to me that these quote unquote hippies 
left that Spawn Ranch. And, and if you ever read the book, I never really knew what happened. And then I was like in my early 20s and I read Helter Skelter by the attorney who prosecuted Manson and the gang. And it's just kind of a fascinating tale, the way it unfolds. Now, most of you probably know the whole story right now. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, Quentin Tarantino takes liberties with the story. It's just, it's always kind of fascinated me. So me and Mark are talking. It turns out he's kind of interested in that too. And it turns out he lives really close to, 20 minutes away from, the Spawn Ranch. That's where they were camped out at that old Western cowboy film ranch. And he's like, you want to check it out? You ever been there? I'm like, well, I don't know. I've seen the Bat Cave from the Batman TV show. I've seen the Hollywood sign. After you live here for 10 years, you've seen pretty much everything. But I don't think I'd ever had that offer come my way. And it's kind of hard to find. And if you run into people from the church next door, I guess they, uh, the church property, they I've heard that maybe they kick you off and you had to go back. So I'm like, sure, let's do it. So we're out there and we're walking around and we're checking it out. It's kind of a trip. Almost 50 years to the day since they left that fateful night for the first round of terror that they inflicted on Hollywood celebrities and just LA at large that night in 1969. And yeah, it was interesting. We check it out. We're like walking through. We went to the little cave, sort of a, a rock overhang where there's a famous picture of the Manson family and we're there 50 years later and also the rock where where Manson used to sit and play his guitar and play his songs and um, preach about the coming apocalypse to his flock. I don't know. I wasn't there, but apparently that's what happened and we saw The Rock. And I, I realized that my whole show has been a lie. There is one guitar that is safe from this show, and that's Manson's guitar. I know he's gone now, but... Yeah, not invited to no guitar is safe. As we were heading down from the road to get to the first stop, the cave, we ran into a guy and his girlfriend. They were like in their 20s and they were looking lost and they were probably afraid that we were about to kick them out. But so Mark was their tour guide as well as mine. And then after the ravine, we went up to the actual site where the Spawn Ranch was, where he had the little Western town all built and the horse corrals and he had his house, George Spawn. And um, it, it was just a flat area, completely overgrown. You know, the, the ranch had been wiped out by a fire like 20 years ago or something. But it's a trip. You know, that ranch just literally three minutes above civilization. You feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but if you just drive over the train tracks and down the hill, boom, civilization. Whole thing very eerie. The most eerie part for me actually was just the thought of how many rattlesnakes were in that tall grass that was surrounding us. I was stomping as much as I could to try and scare them off. You know, they can feel the vibrations. But, you know, Mark's telling me, oh, well, you got to watch out for the baby ones. They don't even have rattles, so you won't even know if you're getting close to them. And they bite the hardest because they don't know what they're doing. And their teeth are the sharpest. Whatever. Anyway, we survived. It was an interesting day, and that's the kind of stuff that happens when you cruise around to these different people's places and studios and whatever, backstages, and hang out with them. I really hope you enjoy this show. I sure did. My name is still Jude Gold, and I'm still using the Zoom recorder. 
I really appreciate you listening and uh, indulging my rambling intro sometimes as I try to put you in the afternoon. That was August 7th. And right now, just found out that management for my band, Jefferson Starship, somebody somewhere made a mistake in this gig that we thought was Thursday night in Chicago. It's a corporate gig. It's actually Wednesday night. So, I'm probably editing this on the plane. Thank you all again for your faithful listenership and for telling your friends and for all those five-star reviews. They really help on iTunes if you can do that. All right, let's head over to Mark's studio where he's playing one of his favorite lefty guitars, a very cool guitar he's going to tell you about. And of course, he's got dozens of lefties, no righties, but he borrowed a electric tailor from one of his students, which was very cool. So I'm playing that through just a, I'm just going 100% clean into a like Fender DeVille amp that was sitting underneath his Hammond B3. It's episode 96. No guitar is safe. Keep it alive till you're 95. Hanging out with Mark Bonilla. Yeah, baby. You got the crazy bio, but we're listening to, right now, we're listening to a song that I believe you dedicated to your son, The Long Awakening. Yeah. Off your new album. Yeah. Celluloid Debris. Mm-hmm. I said that right? You did. Okay. <laughs> no, no mispronunciation. You're batting a thousand so far. Just got it last night, so, you know, it was kind of foggy. listening to it over and over just an amazing record i love this intro here it's just this hypnotic build yeah which is why it took so long for me to put a, a, a third solo album out you know because of all these other things that i was had been doing but i've always been of the uh, the opinion that the, the music is what counts the ego is secondary and all musicians are servant to the music and so many guitar albums that I've heard, it's all about chord progressions and allowing people to wank on for days without end. And it's like, it's not really serving a purpose, you know, at least a musical purpose. So with me, I've always tried to concentrate on composition and using the guitar as a servant in that not me as a player like check what out what i can do it's not that it's, that's not what's important it's because it all channels through you anyway so i don't ever take credit for any of this stuff as far as the long awakening it was one of those things where it was um it, it was basically a, a commentary on parenthood, and it starts in the womb, which is what you hear. You'll hear 
the, the initial sequence is actually my son Nathaniel's heartbeat that we taped when Joey was pregnant with it. It goes, pow, 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 pow. You hear that at the beginning, yeah, and that's the actual heartbeat. So that's what sent, set the tempo for the music. So is Joey getting royalties? Oh, she, writer's credit. Actually, Nate should get the royalties, I guess, unless she's... I'll have to, I, haven't, uh, I haven't talked to her about that, but maybe we'll have to maybe work that out as a three-way split. But, um, yeah. Yes. Um, so anyway, so it goes through that. The whole beginning spacey part is like being suspended in the, in the fluid in the, in the womb. And then, bang, you hear this big chord and it's out. The strings come in. Everything deepens. It's a story. And, and then it gets into, as the beat comes in, that's our, our time with him growing up. And then there's a, the adolescence uh, angst where it changes to a minor complexion. And then... Uh, goes through a maternal thing where it, it's it's um, you know classic guitar and, and more more of a tender thing and then the part where everything kind of stops and it's basically him leaving the nest and the end of it it's this whole rising piece of him going through his life with more things coming at him more things coming as life does to you but with this guitar solo that's the father's guiding light hopefully throughout yeah tell me about that guitar solo what does it represent <laughs> it's pretty fiery and well it's it's it, it was it was meant to be kind of a you know when 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 you leave home and you have to go you you face life you know you, you you're a product of what you were taught and so what this was was just a symbol of, of his father's you know presence you know with all these things gathering as they go it gets thicker and thicker and bigger and bigger as all the complexities of life mount as you go through adulthood with this thing going over the top it does just like remember what your dad said about this not that i'm any purveyor of any great wisdom but it's just it's a father-son thing and then at the end uh it stops and it's just a string quartet with a violent volume pedal which is basically our empty nest afterwards you know but all the way through from the beginning to the end you have three notes the bomb 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 which is basically our family wife husband and son one big and, happy triad yeah exactly and that goes all the way through it mutates and does all different types of stuff as the song runs and it's the last thing you hear is the piano so it's 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 a, it's a family arc going through. So there's, there's a lot there. there's a lot there it's not just basis for a guitar solo it's it's a You are quite the composer, as anyone will be able to tell the second they listen to Celluloid Debris, if, in case they're not fully familiar with everything you've done. And on that yeah. note, got to just read down some of this craziness. I okay. mean, you were Keith Emerson's right-hand man up until the Left-hand end. Left-hand man, actually. <laughs> Left-hand man. <laughs> Left-handed right-hand man, <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You work with David, Cover David Coverdale, Eddie Jobson, Chicago founder Danny Serafine. Is that how you say it? Serafin. Seraphine, yeah, Seraphine. <laughs> Thank you. I always yeah. wondered. It's not Serafini, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was in my sixth grade class. Ah. I remember her. Ronnie Montrose, Glenn Hughes. It's crazy. And um, all of these incredible film credits you have, you've done guitars on stuff like Green Lantern, Spider-Man 2, Iron Man 2, Born Legacy. You've also composed for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that com compositional stuff really comes through in your solo music. Yeah. 
Well, it's, you know, what I tried to do here was, because it's been so long since I've done a, a solo record, because I've had all these other things, as you've just listed, I needed to be able to say, okay, what's the reason for doing another one? And that is just show 25 years of, of growth or progression or whatever it is. So all of these things that I was able to do, arranging for horns or orchestra, you know, with Keith and writing for symphony and and all of these other projects that came in between, you know, this justified, all of these things are been incorporated into this record. Like this is what I've been doing for the last 25 years in the hopes okay. that it's it, you can see an arc from, from American Matador to here, you know, as far as, okay, because people are going, where have you been? Yeah. What have you been doing? You know, I know you're doing other stuff, but when are you going to put another solo album? Well, I needed a reason to do that. So I just didn't want to put one out after the, the second record. I, I got into soundtracks and stuff. I wanted to go a different direction and challenge, challenge myself a little bit more. So that's why I decided hey, to do it now. It's worth the wait. No sense in rushing. And there's so many great moments on this record, too. First, tell me about this crazy guitar. I've seen pictures of it before, and now you're holding it in front of me. Oh, it's got superheroes yes. all over it. Yes, it does. I, uh, I, I'm an unrepentant comic nerd. I've, I've collected comics since I was 10. I've got them all bagged and boarded. You know, I've got Iron Man 1, Silver Surfer 1. I've got all this stuff. Damn. So I, back in 92. What's an Iron Man 1 worth? I just got to ask. I, you know what? I don't know because I'm never going to sell it. Yeah, but it's got to be you know, maybe a thousand bucks. I, I don't know. It might be. It might be. But yeah. it's just one of those things that real comic nerds don't care. Because yeah. the real value is having them, not yeah. not selling them, you know. So you. my my son will inherit them if he wants to sell them. That's perfectly fine. I'm done with them. But um, so I wanted to to put together a, a a guitar. So I took out all my comics, and I I looked through them and found like the great poses of all of them, and I redrew them. I I drew them individually on wow. the illustration board, and I called Marvel up at the time because this is before computers. Uh, before you could illustrate in Photoshop. And I said, hey, what, what do you use? What kind of dyes do you use on your marble stuff? And they go, like, why do you want to know that? I said, well, I, I told him why. And he goes, oh, okay. It's these aniline dyes that you use. So I went and got them at an art store, you know, the exact kind that they use. So they really, the colors pop. And I drew them all. And then we photographed them. And then we inset them into the wood. And then, you know, shellacked over the top of them. And what these things are on the fretboard, everybody's always wondering what these are. Yeah, these, these fret markers. These yeah, the fret markers. Inlays. The, the inlays, it, it's hard to tell, but what they are are the things, if you open the first page of the comic, it was all the stuff you used to send away for, like surprise package, yeah. x-ray specs, onion gum, all of those things. Ten-in-one scope? Yes, those I, types. That's the one I got. Well, I waited six weeks for that thing to come when yep. I was in the third grade. Wasn't it amazing? Play, <laughs> it was kind of disappointing, Of course actually. it was. The, the, the illustration far outweighed. <laughs> I know. I was like, <laughs> yeah, wow. So, well, I remember there was one. It was like 101 revolutionary soldiers. It had looked at these amazing yeah, battles. And too. these damn things kept falling over. There were just these horrid molds. I went, okay, I'm they being were screwed. tiny, yeah. too. Yeah, at that point, that's when you really do discover that that capitalistic America really is out to screw you, you know. Yeah. So anyway, what these are, the um, the illustrations of all of those things that you used to get. And we put a piece of uh, reflective pearl under there, then the uh, the, the actual gel, uh, or I'm sorry, the actual film of the illustration, then a lighting gel, and then epoxied it. So all of them, so they catch the light, and you think that they're lit when they're actually not. And then I have the 12 cents up here because that's how much it costs when I used to buy them. Oh, cool. Was 12 cents. I got to take a picture of this. Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great guitar. You know, Leo Knapp uh, designed this and and put it together for me and all of that. So, but it's, uh, it's a Yamaha Pacifica. Yeah. That's what I've been playing ever since. That's cool. I like yeah. your little brass string tree. Or yeah, whatever. that's a um, what that is is Gary Erickson designed that. 
and it has uh, ruby crystals underneath there, as does the bridge. It's the ruby saddles. So he puts the, he develops these in the uh, lab. And so everywhere that there's, I've got to get a new bridge here, but even here, there's ruby uh, holes, donuts that this thing will go through. So everywhere that the string sits on the guitar, it's on stone. It's not on any metal or plastic. So the harmonics are a lot truer, and they, they it's more sustained, more sustained. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. So, yeah, so um, that's what that is, you know. So I've, I have a lot of uh, great people that are always in league and are finding uh, great stuff to do, you know, so. You're going through a, a red plate amplifier. Yeah, red plate amps, yep. Now you don't have a whole ton of right-handed guitars here for your guests. I think No, I had to give one I had to develop a, get one delivered special for you. Yeah, it's just it's it's a fully communistic uh, guitar <laughs> collection. Save one save one uh, uh, right-hander one. No, I was just thinking like Paul McCartney would tell a story on stage about how you go over to George Harrison's house and he'd hand everybody a ukulele. Yeah. And everyone would have something to play. So. Yeah. Got to get a few right-hand guitars. Well, I will. I Although I was will. looking forward to trying one of these and seeing if I could be like Albert King and yes, play, and play backwards. It's, it's quite a feat. <laughs> I've had to do that my whole life when I got handed a right-handed guitar. But I'll tell you what, yeah. speaking of Paul McCartney, I have a guitar that he will never have. What's that? I have the only Firebird they ever made in left-handed. Oh, wow. Yeah. 1965. Incredible. 64, I'm sorry. 64 Firebird 5. Gibson only made one? It's right over there in the corner. Wow, we have to. The only, have to yeah, only to made a, one. Get a it photo was of made that too. Yes, they, they, it was made by a guy in, um, uh, made for a guy who was in the Rondells, this group. Yeah. Uh, as a graduation present, he was up in South Dakota, and his buddy worked at a, at the mu- local music store who knew somebody in Kalamazoo. And as a graduation present, him being left-handed, they talked Gibson into making one. It doesn't even have a serial number, but it's a it's a wow. one-off Gibson Firebird uh, sixty-four from. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I've got the only one. wasn't cheap. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> well, so you went, now you have a really nice version of Wider Shade of Pale on yeah. American Matador. Yeah. Vamp on that a little bit or something? Yeah, let's do that, yeah. And it, if we need to stop and adjust levels or whatever, you oh, know, we'll if you can fine. hear me we're, or whatever. We're mature, right? We're mature <laughs> yeah. adults. I don't know. Our amps are like 30 feet apart right now, <laughs> so make sure. Well, that. listen, if we're going to do the beginning of that, let me get my volume pedal uh Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'll see if I. Uh, I mean, it's, off, it's got so many chords, but I'll, I'll see if I if I do it the same way you do it. Okay. I don't know. You count it off. It's your t- your groove. Two, three, four.
Yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff, man. <laughs> you got the two versions of that on that record. And very I do, beautiful. because I had originally planned to do it as an instrumental, and so I laid it out as an instrumental on the demos, and I really liked that. But then I thought, man, I wonder what it would sound like with vocals. Who, who am I going to get to do that, though? Because, you know, this is a classic song. If I don't do that, I wasn't going to do it myself. So yeah. I thought, I need to get somebody that's reputable. And so Glenn, I, somebody gave me Glenn Hughes' number because I was a big, big Deep Purple fan and Hughes Thrall. So I just I called him and I said, look, you don't know me, but uh, I've got an album I'm just, just working on right now and Watershed Pale, would you think about singing that? And there was no, nothing, he didn't, there was no response, just quiet, and, he, and I went, oh, Christ, he's trying to find some way of turning me down gently. <laughs> and he, then he goes, you know, I was born to sing that thing. You know, yeah. So I went, well, good, you can sing it <laughs> You can sing it on this record. And he did. I have film of him singing it in the, uh, in the studio. It's amazing. I mean, Glenn is just an incredible vocalist. We skipped the Turn the floor. His, his inflections and dynamics and shifts, I, I think, are unlike anyone else. I, I don't think there's anyone that has his dynamic. Yeah, he's got the rock, the soul, and the, yes, and the metal in there. He's got yeah. everything, everything's in there. Yeah. So. Kind of like you. Well, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I'm, I've got ADHD. The room was I love though your wide range of stuff. Like you, you covered a tune, and maybe this will be a good chance to go back to your youth and figure out how you started. But there's this beautiful cover of "Our Winter Love." Yeah, you remember that song? I did not. Yeah, I remembered the melody when yeah. I heard it. I was yeah. like, I know this, and yeah. you're doing yeah. some beautiful stuff with like yeah. the baritone comes yeah. in. And, yeah. And well, it's a, it was a tune that my brother and I, my brother Tom and I, used to listen to. In our bedroom, we had like a, a bedroom about as big as a closet up in Walnut Creek. You know? Walnut Creek, California. Yep. That's near where San Francisco. Greece. Yeah. And uh, I would hang out there, and we would hang out during the summer, and I had a, a, a fan, unlike this polar cup here, that, that was our air conditioning. It was just one fan that blew all the hot air around, you know. Yeah. And uh, we would listen to the, into the transistor radio in the summer, and this song would come on. I think it was like 63, 64, right in there when it came out with Bill Purcell had done an arrangement of it, and we just were both enthralled with it. It was just beautiful. And it was ironic as it came out, we were listening to it in summer, yet it was called Our Winter Love. But it reminded us of winter. And so this was kind of dedicated to my brother doing this, uh, us kind of hanging out, listening to this in, in the room. And, and I wanted to make it sound retro, so I used that great Glenn Campbell baritone, Galveston-type yeah. guitar. It was a tectone. It was a, um, a Yamaha tectone guitar. And then I doubled it, in areas with a carven seven string.
And uh, you got a really sweet vibrato or tremolo on that. Yeah. How did you do that? Is that a- That's wobble arm. I use I use this a lot. I use it. Uh, so there's not, but there's also like a tremolo, isn't there? Like a volume up and. Down? Oh yes, yes, yes. There's tremolo as well. That's the um, that yeah. was my Mobius pedal. Cool. My Mobius pedal. Strymon. Yes. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. Was that? Were you even a guitar player back then when you were in love with that song? Did you yeah. guys? You had it on forty-five or something? No, I never had the. I never had the single. I've always listened to it on the radio. You know, I, what is that cool warped record thing? That I, I fabricated. the the um, The beginning of that is my actual forty-five record player. That you know, the kind where you'd have the big the big spindle and you'd stack fifteen of the which is horrible for the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you'd have a big stack and then it would go, it would slam down onto the platter. Then the, the record yep. the needle would come over. Well, I recorded that. I still, I found my, this was in an old yeah. antique shop. I found the original one that I had, and I saw so I recorded the whole mechanism going over yeah. and the, the vinyl, and that the beginning of it is me just, actually it was on a, another setting on the Mobius where it sounded like the beginning of Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, you know, where it was all yeah. like ass and tinny. And I did kind of the yeah. melody of the, uh, the, the what was coming later yeah. on in the song, but done it like it was an old 45. And then it, you hear the, the, the vinyl scratches and pops turn into raindrops as the thunder hits. It, it, it melds into rain. And then you get full fidelity. And then, like, it's okay, light years, now we have, you know, 50 years ahead of time or yeah. ahead in the future. This is what it sounds like now. Redo a song. And it's one of those things I think behooves somebody. If you're going to redo something, if you're going to cover something, do a different version of it. Don't do the same version of it. Do something that that brings a different light on the, oh, yeah. on the actual piece. Like a, like a statue. If you light it from one angle, you light it from another angle, it's a whole different work of art. What a beautiful metaphor, Mark. Well, that's that's how it is, you <laughs> yeah. know. And, and as you... Haven't you ever thought that, that when you hear a particular song... You may have heard it a lot when you were a kid, but yeah. for some reason it didn't resonate with you until you're like in your 30s. All of a sudden you go, wow, Midnight Train to Georgia. I never realized how deep those lyrics were. Yeah. Now I do because of all the experiences you've had, you resonate with it now. So yeah. in every in your whole life cycle, you go around once, right? And you see things from a different angle each time. And so it may be that at a particular angle, that statue looks yeah. amazing where it didn't be as impressive maybe on this side. So what I did for that is I made it feel like that's how I felt when I heard the song as a kid. That's how I, I translated the song now is I, I wanted you to get the yeah. emotional feeling and the upswell that I got listening to it when I was only like 10 years old. And that's what I've done now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I totally, you're preaching to the choir, man. Yeah, transform yeah. a song, yeah. make it your own. And I think you can also take songs that maybe you didn't even really like that much, but then when you do them, like... I never really liked the song Funky yeah. Town, but with, it's a piece of our youth. Right. But right. I, I did a version of it yeah. that was pretty impassioned and yeah. totally yeah. a million well, miles it, away from... It, and that's what's great. I mean, that's that's why you redo a song. You redo it yeah. to, to highlight a different feature of the song that spoke to you or thinking like it has possibilities. I did that with 4 and 20 on the album. It said, you know, Stephen Stills acoustic guitars thing. I did it like with John Bonham oh, yeah. drum beat. 
and it works. It works there. It shows you it's a great song if you can put it in more than one. Like like Joe Cocker did with help from my friends. Well, I got to figure out how you ended up down here from the Bay Area. You know, amazing. I want to get to that in one second. Yeah. But since we're on the topic yeah. of reinvent, reimagining songs, you took this Ravel prelude <laughs> on American Matador. Yes, I did. Like, now, originally, that's a piano thing? Yeah, it was originally piano piece, and Maurice scored it for orchestra, yes. But it was originally a piano piece with two hands, thank you. And yeah, yeah so you kind of were doing one hand on one guitar and one on the other track. Yeah, pretty much. So. Yeah, I was probably doing the left hand on one, and that's not easy because you have to... You know, you have to, you know, with your, when you have one brain working both hands simultaneously, that's good. But my brain, I had to work individually simultaneously. Exactly. And originally, Mike Keneally and I had figured that out. No and, way. And, and we had it down pretty well. But Warner Brothers was pressuring me to, no, we don't want another guitar player on the album. I'm like, but, 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 you know, and they said no. And I said, I was young and naive, or just naive. And <laughs> yeah, and I always felt bad about that, you know. And so at some point, Mike and I will do that live. We're going to do it live just so we we actually will perform it. cool piece the way it moved through different keys and stuff but there's yeah well with this uh ravel was uh this this was dedicated to, to his war uh war friends that he could never go to war and these were de- all the the leton de couperon which was the 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 suite of which this is the yeah. prelude the first one he um he wrote these as a test as a tribute to all of his friends that were able to go off and fight he was not able to thank god um but it's an incredibly breakneck tempo uh the, the actual piano piece. Very difficult to play. And I thought I had actually bitten off more than I could chew. Had gotten halfway through this going, my God, these, these you know, because this is not meant for a guitar, a guitar. But I was in love with the piece so much that that's what drove me to finish it. And I'm glad I did. But it was, uh, it's, it was quite the effort. Back to the story of you and your brother sharing a room, listening to the transistor radio. Were you already playing guitar at that point? And if so, what got you started on music? Were well, your parents my, musicians? Or? My, well, my, we were in a musical neighborhood. It was like a small little neighborhood in, in Walnut Creek. Um, my uh, my dad and mom used to sit around singing Pete Seeger folk, folk songs. My mom had an auto heart. My dad bought a guitar. And we'd sit around. And, and my dad started taking guitar lessons when I was like 10. And he would be in there listening or trying to figure stuff out and i'd be listening to him through the bedroom door and <laughs> i picked out the melodies and they go dad was this what you were trying to do and he yeah. go yeah i think the wrong guy's taking lessons so we couldn't afford two people taking lessons so i said do you want to take lessons and i said yeah so i ended up taking from a, a jazz player named bill tapia uh, up in lafayette and uh so i learned all this all the i got heavily into the jazz standards and all of that stuff but my uh my next my, not my next door neighbor but across the street my oldest and dearest friend his name is jim gammon and he was blind since birth 
And he's one of these guys that never let him be a handicap. It was amazing mm-hmm. the stuff that he would be able to do. And he was the one that turned me on to all the new music because he was everything was about sound. We would record everything. I did my first multiple recordings in his basement on his reel-to-reel, all of that stuff. So that's kind of how I got started playing, was exposed to a lot of music through him. And then I just I had a guitar, and it was just like... There was no choice, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it chooses you, I guess. I It was never a point where I looked up at John Lennon being tugged and pulled yeah. and going, that's a good job, you know, like he says. Uh, I just, it was always part right, of it. Right, right. So um, how old were you when you started playing? Uh, I started playing at five. Oh, wow. When I was, was just, really like, I had yeah. a Wyatt Earp guitar. It had, like, Wyatt Earp and some spurs and stuff on the other side. And yeah. yeah, I just I carried that thing around and plunk. I had four strings. The action was about six miles to the fretboard, and but yeah, I just I would pluck out melodies and stuff with that. And then my dad got me a rodeo guitar for seven bucks uh, when I was about seven. Ooh, moving up, yeah, man. <laughs> and then a harmony guitar when I was yeah. ready to take lessons. They were all acoustic guitars. There were no no electrics. Yeah, I started off on a harmony stratotone. Oh, okay. I remember thinking one day I'm going to get a Fender Stratotone. Yeah. And then I realized, no, they're called Fender Stratocasters. Yes. Yeah. That sounds way cooler than Stratotone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you just said Strats, you would have had yeah. well, that's for both. the longest time. Yeah. Yeah. So what what it was kind of your trajectory as you be, learned the instrument and started maybe doing gigs or playing in bands in high school and yeah. becoming a pro? How did you? Well, I was I was playing in junior high with jam bands. I would I would uh, I got together with uh, a guy named Ken Parrott who was a bass player, and his brother had a Vox organ. So, of course, we did Inagata De Vita. We did, and a lot of Grand Funk. We were heavily into Grand Funk. Like the awesome. Red Album just blew my mind when it came out. I've gotten to be buddies with Mark Farner now because yeah. we play with him all the time, like okay. Double Bills. Yeah, great. And he's still got his he's voice. Got he's got soul, still, man. He's amazing. One of my all-time heroes. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I had played the world stage with Jimmy Paterek a few uh, couple of years ago, and Mark walked in and went, Dude! <laughs> What's yeah. expected him was that, <laughs> Yeah, and you got me laid when I was in eighth grade. I just want you to know that, you know. And he's like, I'm sorry, huh? You know, he goes, well, inside looking out, man. I learned that whole thing, and Karen Vincent, like, you know, <laughs> took a liking to me. I want to thank you for that, you know. <laughs> Laughed, but, but yeah, so yeah. when I get into high school, I, I auditioned for a band named Rock Island, and they were a band that had already been together. They were all guys in the high school. And so I, I was able to get in the band because I could play I'm Going Home by 10 Years After, note for note, from the Woodstock album. Could you play it authentically out of tune, or did you stay? No, were you still I stayed. In tune? I stayed in tune. I would play Hendrix out of tune. <laughs> but you got to yeah. show me some of that. Yeah. It's kind of like I love that. that shit. I haven't practiced that in a while. So. I know. I feel you. I just remember hearing that on the radio when I was like ten for the first time. Amazing, right? And it's like, I got home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My babe. Got home. My baby. It's like, yeah. That, the way the guitar was answering his voice was yeah. just killing Amazing, me. I know. Yeah. 
I know, and so I, I immediately overnight was a big album Lee fan, you know, and, and, and Keith knew him really well, and uh, he was a real prince. Actually, at one point, I probably, not a lot of people know this, that Keith Emerson and Alvin Lee, both when they were high on acid, decided to swim the English Channel, and they were in, they were in uh, England. <laughs> That's not going to work out. <laughs> I got about, I think maybe... 50 yards out thought you know this isn't a good idea they came back but they both tried it they both stripped down naked and jumped in the water and and went but i don't That's think i don't think it's roll. out in a lot of interviews but yeah he told me that one time i just i couldn't believe it, it was hilarious it, it'd be something he would do yeah i'm glad know. they uh, i'm glad they made a u-turn on that i am too we wanted uh, the next album yeah so, so you're uh playing with rock island yes and um uh, we did a lot of uh, a lot of original stuff. We were together ten years, and it was great because it, it taught me that you could communicate in a band and not have head trips. You know, we would get together. There was issues. We would all talk them out, and it was a very like of a majority. Even though myself and Del Burchett wrote most of the material, we didn't. It, we shared it with everybody. It wasn't like anybody was. Well, I get to say what it is because I'm right. No, it wasn't like that at all. We were all diplomatic, yeah. and to this day, we're all friends. And High rules. Yeah, and it's it. It taught me that you, at a very early age, you can do this. You could, you can be in a diplomatic band. So I did that, and then when that ended, I played a lot of club bands around the area, uh, a lot of stuff. And then um, it wasn't until I met Keith Emerson down at a bar in uh, San Jose, California. He walked in one night, and I this and before this, I had been working with Ronnie Montrose. Ronnie had produced Rock Island. And he and I started to hook up. You know. So you had an album when you were like teenager. Or something? Well, we didn't have an album. It was like it was like demo but, stuff, like demo tapes demo for albums. But he came in. He heard potential, and he came in and uh, would produce. And like I say, he and I kind of really locked. We had a, the same sense of humor, and I was a, already a huge Montrose fan. As a matter of yeah. fact, I had auditioned for Sam Hager when uh, they had first broken up. And I just I found Sammy's number and I called him up. And I said, "Hey, I'm Mark Benham, your new guitar player." And he's going yeah. like, "How'd you get this number?" He says, "That's not important. What's <laughs> important is that I come over right now." And he goes, "You know what? I like your energy. Why don't you come over?" Really? <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was a kid, you know. But I, I went over there and I blistered. It was his his uh, Carmasi's brother, uh, Billy, on uh, drums. And and Sammy, this was um, he was living at eighty seven Montford Street in uh, in uh, Marin County, and I I thought I had the gig, and he looks at me after it's over, he goes, "Well, you're fast, I'll give you that." That's what he told me. <laughs> I didn't get the gig, but at least I knew it was fast. Man, Sam Hagar says I'm fast. Yeah, you know, that was like a badge of honor at the time. You know, hey, was, that's cool. I yeah. respect you chasing that <laughs> opportunity down. <laughs> so anyway, um, so when I got to play with uh, or work with Ronnie, I was like doubly stoked you know and yeah. and he and i became real good friends and he befriended my family my f- mom and dad became his surrogate parents they lived he lived maybe like a mile away so or you guys were both pretty young at that point i mean yeah he was well, a little older oh yeah he was about 10 years older oh, okay yeah. you know uh but he would work on gear i would help him program stuff and you know we were just friends you know yeah. and and so i would do gigs with him and and uh, he he wanted to take me in. He says, "Look, I'm gonna I want we're gonna do a solo album. I don't want you playing these clubs anymore." And he says, "You're too good for that, you know." And so he, under his own nickel, he went down to the the music annex in Menlo Park. Yeah, I'm and, in there. And Roger Worsima gotcha. was engineering, and we did a full album like demo stuff. And one of the tunes we did was White Noise, and uh, I was playing it at this club, 
just you know we're with the, with a trio, and in walks the guy that looks like Keith Emerson from the back of the pub. I'm like San Jose, so, yeah. Like so, I immediately discounted. Right, I went. It's yeah. not Keith Emerson. It just looks like. And uh, at the end of the uh, song, we took a break. He comes up, and I then I obviously notice like. It is Keith Emerson, you know, so I'm already, my mind's reeling a little bit. And, he, and was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I, I mean, they're all of our heroes, but were oh, they specific heroes of oh, yours? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you that, actually, that wasn't the first time we met. The first time we met was on the Brain Salad Surgery Tour. I was in the front row. He jumps off the stage during Tarkas with his, uh, his theremin, and he bowls me over. And he reaches down, picks me up, and we both walk, walk, <laughs> looked at each other for a minute. And he goes, like, and he looked off. So it was interesting that we were like, hey, I'll see you in 20 years, you know. But Amazing. So he comes up and he introduces himself to me. And I said, yeah. And he says, what was that song you just did? And I said, it's called White Noise. He goes, you're going to record it. And I went, yeah. And he goes, do you mind if I play piano on it? Goes, you're and, kidding me. And, and I looked at him like, and the only thing I could say was, well, what have you done? As a joke, right? He didn't. He, yeah. he thought it was serious. He goes, "Well, I was in a band called The Nice. Then I was at E.O. I said, "Stop, stop, stop, stop! I've got posters <laughs> of you up on my wall." Okay, <laughs> awesome. Moment. I know who you are. That was a joke. So he asked me to go water skiing with him the next day, which I thought was very surreal. And we have pictures. I have proof. I water skied with Keith Emerson. And uh, he told me he was working with a guy named Kevin Gilbert. I just know I don't know too many Brits who water ski. Oh, uh, he does though. He does. Yeah, he, he has his pilot's license and everything, man. So, um, so he taught me how to water ski. And then said, I have a project I'm doing it in San Jose with Kevin Gilbert's producing it. I would love you to play guitar. So I went in and I met Kevin Gilbert. And Kevin so what and year I, is this? 80, I want to say 84. Okay. 94. And Kevin didn't know who the hell this, this guitar player was that Keith has brought in out of the, you know, the, the gutter. And then I, I, whatever I played, the first thing off, Kevin looked at me and went, that was per- play that again immediately. I went, okay. And he hit the tape. And we put it down. And then we found out through dinner that we were huge monkey fans, both of us. And we were kind of afraid to admit it to the cooler people, you know, <laughs> that we were major fans of the monkeys and Gentle Giant. And it was two of them that we usually, like, were so far, you know, yeah. apart. But so we became the fast friends and had a lot of phone conversations. I had him come up to work on some of my stuff. I came down to work on some of his stuff. And then he said, look, um, I'm in a band called Toy Matinee at the moment. You should come down here and join the band you know and i was like okay this is kevin giller yeah yeah and so i did i came down i and while i was there i said you know i've got this album that that i'm demoing and he says why don't we demo let's let's do an album here because at that point uh i had gotten some money to a financer to, to come in so we did the album at kev's in kev's living room which he had converted into a studio and then the drum tracks and stuff we did at Pat Leonard's studio uh, in Johnny Yuma in Burbank. And Keith came in and played piano on uh, on uh, White Noise. And then Ronnie Montrose came in and play, uh, played uh, Slide on one. And so it, that's kind of how I got started and how I moved to L.A. Amazing. Well, let's hear White Noise right now. we got to hear some of this from you and, you and Keith, your first project together of many.
then you, you got your taste of L.A. and working at... Now, Kevin Gilbert, the late, great producer from the uh, from the Toy Tuesday Man. Night Music Club, yeah, right? With yeah. Cheryl Crow and everything, but this was before This that? was before Just that. Before yeah, that. Actually, actually, the Tuesday Night Music Club, how that started was... Uh, this was when he had moved over to Lawnmower Studios in, in Pasadena. He had he'd shared a kind of a studio place with uh, Bill Bottrell. And we would go over there and record stuff. And then we ended up getting a bunch of people together on Tuesday nights to jam. But none of us, the rule was you couldn't jam on the instrument you were good at. had to play, pick a different instrument that you weren't where you were no good at right that's great so i could never play guitar i was always playing keys or drums or bass or something else and from those sessions is what Carol, cheryl's record became it was all that's why they called it the tuesday night music club because it was like a jam session that and so you were down there for i was down yeah, there for for, for some of it. yes for some of it but i didn't stay I, I had moved on because I had a, an, another album to do, and, and so I, I moved on. Should have stayed. Financially, it would have been better for me, but, <laughs> but, but I don't regret it. So, Toy uh, Matinee had Cheryl Crow on keys. Yeah, a Toy Matinee did. Yeah, that's how uh, we okay. – yeah, she had just come off the road with um, – she had been on the road with Michael Jackson and, and uh, Eric Clapton, and then she uh, joined us, and it was great because she, she's classically trained uh, pianist. She's really – I mean, you wouldn't think – you know, if you don't, if you think of her now as you know with the guitar, it's no, she was great on keyboards. Well, is that so. you shredding on your new album on keys on Alpha Male? Yes. Yeah. Piano shredder. Yeah. I, mean, I was talking well, about the piano part. Obviously, you're doing the guitar. And you're, I'm doing uh, all the keys on there except for yeah. uh, Stevie Percaro does uh, the piano on um, Long Awakening. See, and we all call him Steve Percaro, but you call him Stevie. We all call him Sammy Hagar, but you call him Sam because you're, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah. So, but, like um, and, and then Philippe Seiss uh, plays piano on Our Winter Love, who's uh, a dear friend and uh, amazing jazz pianist. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, but everything else I play all the, the keys on, you know. Just, I knew what I wanted. Yeah, yeah. So you're hanging out in L.A., and before we continue the story, just that this Keith Emerson thing really went many years for you. Like, yeah. Now, on your new record, there's actually one breakdown to me that sounds very ELP-ish. Like, uh, it's on, uh, I guess it's on... I guess it's on the eruption of John Minimum Part Two. Okay. It sounded very. It just reminded me. Well, uh, look, if like you're if you, when you're spending that much close time in proximity, your DNA is going to rub off on each other, which is wonderful. Yeah, which uh, I have no complaints about that. Yeah.
I mean, look, I had Keith's, I had all of Keith's gear in here at one point. We were working on the Keith Emerson band album. I had the Moog. You know, Has he sat part. in this chair right when Tuckman played this yeah. B3 that I No, he think. had his own B3 here. Yeah. He had his own B3 here. But he had the Moog. We had the Moog set up here, the giant Moog. And I would just love to have friends come over and they the double take that they did when they saw the thing went like that. Yeah, and yeah. they were like, you know, they would put fruit and sacrifice animals at its altar there. You know, it was like <laughs> hilarious, you know. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just going down the, the rabbit hole on YouTube, found this video of them playing fanfare for the common man yeah. in a stadium at Soundcheck with like a foot of snow all around. You've yeah, seen this video? Toronto. Yeah. 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 I've never, or Montreal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not like, you know, yeah. maybe as deep as, as your yeah. most ELP fans, but that was yep. their, their breath is like. Yeah. Which, it, which <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yep. That's now it. you guys ultimately did an amazing version of that yourself. Yeah. On Three Fates, The right? Three Fates Project, yeah, which was, uh, yeah, it was a great album. We went to Munich to do that. And we had Troy Laqueta on drums. And Troy had never played with an orchestra, never at all. He was, you know, had been with Tesla for years. and But he was game and fearless. And he came in and, and killed it. And uh, Tadia Mickelson, who put the whole thing together and conducted. Uh, I, I, my whole musical outlook changed after working with him. I became much more of a aware of dynamics and orchestral flavorings, many of which are on the album, you know, because yeah. of that. Uh, but uh, Keith was finally able to hear Tarkas done as a symphony because we orchestrated. He was in the back. I remember at the, at the back of the hall one day when they were rehearsing. I went back to, to see how it sounded back there, and he had tears just you streaming know. down. So I said, you all right? And he goes, you've got no idea, mate. He says, I, I wrote this in the basement of my folks' you know, yeah. house on this old upright, and I've always wanted it to be like this. And the only way I could ever have done that was to do synthesizers. And he says, now it's like, I finally got there, you know. You know, not to put myself into this story, but it's a feeling, and I'm sure you know it, when melodies that you have created, and I've played a few gigs with um, some orchestras with Jefferson Starship. We have a new song, and they're playing melodies I wrote. And also I played with the um, Oakland Symphony mm -hmm. back maybe 10 years ago with a uh -huh. piece that I wrote several themes for. And the feeling that you get when you see these world-class musicians yeah. who are just showing up for work and they're just reading it off the page and they put their whole life, man, they've all played their instrument for 25 years and real instruments like yeah. Yeah. violins, <laughs> cellos, and horns. Yeah. And it's coming out and it's the first time it's just perfect and, and their expertise is delivering the notes that you wrote. Like, I'm not in any way trying to compare myself to no, you or but Keith Emerson, is, yeah, but, but I've it, been but there. But you know what it is? We're all, we've all felt that. You feel some reason... When you when you write for a symphony and you see it being come you see it being played back to you, you finally feel legitimate.
that yeah. feeling where you finally go, you know what? I actually have done something that I, I think is worthwhile. You know, regardless of how anybody else will take it, that's not what counts. It yeah. counts the fact that you know, it, you, you finally feel like you're relevant somehow, even if it's a small relevancy. It's it's just something about an orchestra. Yeah. Well, so you're seeing your music exist. Like, most of the time, it's just in your fingers, and you can yeah. play it, and you're the only one. And yeah. all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, it, this that somehow, Munich orchestra is playing your guys' yeah, it's, stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And there's nothing else that beats it. I'm sorry. That's why I do what I do. Because getting something out and through to someone else is the greatest yeah. satisfaction there is. And then the ha- to have them enjoy it or get it is even better you know but but yeah i i know yeah. I'm, I'm with you on it it's that's how what he was feeling and we've all felt that way you know it's it's no less legitimate yeah. than than any of us and it's almost surprising that that was the first time he really experienced that was with you like you think oh yeah god yeah like, well i think it was because he had he had composed piano concerto for that purpose but he had ne- he you know and though he had had, had composed tarkas it was never designed at that time to be played for a symphony even though that's what he had in his head so to hear it that first piece that he wrote for symphony only couldn't do it for logistical reasons it, yeah. it really it really meant something to him you know incredible well, well you know looking back on keith emerson what as a musician what is there anything that he really taught you about music or being a musician or a composer or a player that you really walk away with that changed your life musically well there, yeah there's a lot I, I think the the most important thing was and this is kind of always encapsulated him as he he never took himself seriously but he took what he did seriously and i mean that's why he was always interjecting like popeye themes in the middle of classical pieces and all that as a little nod and a wink you know but he was fearless in other words he would try anything you know we we, we were in experimenting around you know and you know you think my god all the stuff that he's done that he would just like just kind of want to phone it in. No, he wanted to try different things, experiment around, putting the 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 Moog through a Leslie, you know, doing a sequence or something. He was always trying to find something that was fiery and bold, and adventurous. And and I hope that I retain that same energy at, at his at his age because it was uh, it was real inspiring. Plus the fact that, that the sheer amount of improvisation that would occur on stage night after night when we would play and go off in directions that we had no idea, but it, we would sit there and listen to each other and both kind of go down the rabbit hole and figure out that at some point we'll come up, but we don't know where. So it, it again uh, showed me and gave me permission to, to try anything. It doesn't matter if you fall. Everybody's going to fall. It matters if you get up. You know, The reason you fall is to teach yourself how to get up. That's the only reason we fall. So you have to. You can't play it safe. There's no reason to. You never know what your full potential is if you just play it safe. And of course, I have to address this mystery break on your record. Great organ tone. Oh, yeah. The guy's name is Blind Sussex. <laughs> yeah, right. Sounds yeah. kind of like... It, it does, doesn't it? Yes, it sure it does. does. Well, you know, like I say, yeah. you know, uh, hanging out together, you start to copy each other's accents, you know? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> who knows, you know? Yeah, whoever that organ player is. Yeah, it's, it's a mystery, isn't it? And really, the tone, everything. Well, yeah, yeah. So, we're very cool. Now, after that, 
Well, what, what, where did your LA trajectory take you next? Because well, you've gotten deep into like the film industry. Yeah, now. that's how it. That's where I went next. I well, I did two solo albums, you know, and toured behind those, Double Ticket and Matador, and then I w- we were playing on the and, and God bless Mark and Brian because they were constant uh, advocators of Toy Matinee and then my stuff after that. They're, they were huge L.A. They were like the morning show here in L.A. for yeah. years. Prior to that, yeah, they were like the number one show at KLOS, morning show. Yeah, they were yeah. the morning radio hosts. It actually set the bar for all the other radio hosts that came after them. So they, they were big staples here. And they took a liking to us. And uh, till this day, I still talk to them, especially Mark. I, Mark and I are, are great friends. But cool. So James heard, I guess, heard me playing or soloing or something. James is? James Newton Howard. Uh, okay. Film composer, very, very prominent film composer, yeah. And it called Doug Buttleman, who was our manager at the time. He knew Doug. And says, who's the guitar player in your band, in the band? You're, you know, so that's Mark Benilla. I says, wow, do you think he'd like to come in and maybe do some s- guitar stuff on these movies I'm working on? And I said, I, I said, you kidding me? So that was uh, American Heart and Digstown were the first two movies that I did for James. So we ended up working together. Constantly, you know, we did Waterworld, we did Alive, we did Saint of Fort Washington, so many films. Uh, I I can't remember them all. And we did yeah. the Born, the Born Legacy was the last one that we and Green Lantern. Both he wrote those and uh, or composed with those too. So I ended up then writing source pieces, which are like pieces to be on the radio or something in the background. And then he connected me with a buddy of his, Marty Davich, who was writing for General Hospital. And I ended up writing songs with Mary Breath Derry for Ricky Martin before Ricky became famous. So I would produce him in the studio because he was on, he was an actor on the show. And then uh, Marty got uh, 90210, Beverly Hills 90210, so did all the guitars on that series. Wow. And just started, re- and then started writing more and more. And then I got offered a couple of series and then hooked up with uh, management. And, you know, uh, a buddy of mine, Larry Wilmore, who uh, was a, a old pal from uh, the 80s when we used to live up north, he would come through on a comedy circuit. He would stand up, and my, my wife, Joey, would bring home these comics like Lost yeah. Dogs because they, their contract said that they, 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 the, the club wouldn't pay for their hotel. So they'd come <laughs> crash at our house. You know, like Lost Rob Dogs. Schneider, Dana Carvey, uh, um, Larry, you know. And so Larry and I bonded. And then he came down here. He lived down here, and I would come and, and crash at his place when I was down here. And then he ended up, you know, uh, doing Bernie Mac show, the PJs, uh, all these shows. Uh, the, you know, the Larry Wilmore nightly show, I did the theme for that. So I, I did a lot of work for him. So I just got in. I just got ingrained in the system yeah. in in doing a lot of film and TV That's stuff, amazing. which I loved. And then, like I said, we did ju- uh, Stevie Percaro did Justified, and I keep, brought me in, and we ended up both writing for the show. And I did all the mandolins and bass guitars, and you know, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, all yeah. that stuff. Well, you that. know, it's interesting. I just started doing writing for TV, mostly just cues and transitional music. Yeah, and with John O'Brown mostly, mm-hmm. and. It's been about two years, and it's really fun and satisfying. Fun. And then after about a year and a half or two years, the checks start coming in. Yeah. Then you're like, hey, yeah, this nice. is not a bad thing at all. Yeah, can you say residual? Like mail- mailbox money. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it Yeah. Goes. Well, no, and it keeps you floating. You know, yeah. it's great. So, yeah, I mean, that's how I bought this house. You know, uh, from that, from a very kind of, you know, it wasn't a great TV show, but it was a lot of music in it, you know. Oh, you mean that specific? Yeah, right? yeah. All right but uh, yeah, so you know it, it. So now I try to balance in between, you know, both both worlds because I love the fact that with soundtrack stuff you can go you go in areas that normally you wouldn't go if you were just trying to have your career in one area. So you know, I I don't want to ever 
sell one world short for the other one. You know, it's all about balance. You've got like six feet because you've got one foot in this thing and one foot over there. And yeah, but isn't that? I mean, yeah. As as any kind of an artist, yeah. I also do voiceover work. I do like stuff for Chevy and and you know uh, Lexus and all that stuff as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you have any examples? Right huh? You have, can you play any something? I could. Yeah. <laughs> On the computer right here or something? Oh yeah, I could. I could play you something. Um, you want to hear it now? If I mean, if it's. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what. Let me, uh, let me key this on real quick. Well, that's cool if you're trying to pull it up. I mean, yeah, it's amazing that you do all these things like you're also a graphic artist. And I know you did some album covers for... Well, I started with uh, Montrose, Ronnie Montrose. Yeah. My dad and I did the cover for Territory. Then I did the cover for Mean with a couple of solo albums. And then, yeah, then all the Emerson stuff and all the Civil Row. Uh, a lot of, yeah, because my dad was a graphic artist uh, growing up. So I knew all that stuff just yeah. by watching Osmosis, you know, proximity effect. I knew about that. And my first gig, my only gig that I actually had to wear a suit and tie was a graphic artist. Oh, I really? did that for a year and got laid off because the boss didn't like my long hair. Huh. So, but it was it was a mixed blessing. I'm glad glad he did, you know. Yeah. Long hair's gotten more accepted. Yeah. Unless you're an airplane pilot, I think. <laughs> If Steve Morris were to go back to flying for Delta or whatever he did, he'd probably have to cut his hair again. I guess so. Yeah, my <laughs> my buddy Mark Norgard, he's a Southwest Airlines pilot. He was the rock drummer in high school. Oh, really? And now he's got short hair. But. Well, yeah, I knew, I, I've talked to actually a lot of pilots that are, in fact. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Quick time move. There you go. All right, so... This is for Kubota. Shift into savings now at your local Kubota dealer. Instead of shoveling snow this season, get a BX tractor with your choice of PTO-powered front-mounted blowers, snow blades, and rotary brooms to make this chore a snap. Get I know that voice. Low zero percent APR. For I swear I've heard you before. On a new BX70 tractor and up to fifteen hundred dollars in savings when you add two new qualifying implements. See your local Kubota dealer today. So, yeah, yeah. Amazing. I, I, they broadcast him during the Super Bowl last year, you know, so, yeah. Your voice? Yeah. What client was that? That was Kubota. Oh, really? Yeah. For this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Killer. So, yeah. So, I, you know, it, it. the thing is, you, you I've, I've never tried to stay in one area. I mean, it's, it's. I know people say, well, you can't diversify too. Well, who says? Who says you can't diversify? You know, I like to be able to explore things and, and have fun doing stuff. You know, that's what, we're, that's what we're given the time on this planet for. Why sell ourselves short and, and pigeonhole ourselves? Yeah, I mean, speaking of diversify, yeah, you got a uh, you've got a tour coming up with one of the Spinal Tap guys. Yes, Derek Smalls. Derek Smalls is lukewarm water tour. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and I assume you've played with him before. I have. Yes, we've we've done some shows. So we did a show here uh, in Los Angeles, but it was a private show. We did one in New Orleans. Um, yeah, what a joy to work for this guy. Uh, you talk about a class act. Um, C.J. Vanston has uh, got me the gig on this because C.J. is the musical director and did a lot of the, you know, composed for music for a lot of the uh, yeah. Chris Guest's films. And C.J. and I became good friends during the Emerson uh, tribute stuff. And he says, man, you'd be perfect for this sh for this thing. And, and, and I was. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I mean, in, in as much as the personality match is great, uh, Harry is just, you know, he's a joy to work for. And... Uh, Loves the music. And uh, the music is good. It's not like, you know, here's the thing I, that impressed me about the Spinal Tap. Because we have to do like, we're doing like a, a few Spinal Tap songs. And, you know, of course, we all know the movie. I could write, you know, we could all recite yeah. it. But when you when you end up figuring the music out, the music is actually pretty involved. It's not 
easy. Yeah. Like, you know, Stonehenge, you know, you got these, you know, you have these, this, I have to play mandolin on it, which is, you know, a, a high school wet dream. But, um, you know, there's certain things like on, on uh, Heavy Duty where, the, you know, you've got a Bach piece and there's stuff in there that oh, you, yeah. have to, you have to you have to learn it, you know. And yeah. and then the new stuff on the, uh, the Smalls Change album is phenomenal, beautifully uh, conceived and, and, and quite intricate, yeah. you know. I love that stuff. Well, you know. You must do Big Bottom. We I mean, do. That's got to be his number one thunderous jam. Yep. I uh, I used to tour with, it was a three-headed bass attack of Billy Sheehan, Jeff Berlin, and Stuart Ham. Ah. And, like, I was the house guitar player, so to speak, and I'd yeah. do one set with each of them. And then at the end, they'd all come out with their basses, and I'd get a bass, too, and we'd do Big Bottom. But before the tour... Jeff Berlin, he's like, all right, I'll do this tour, but I'm not getting up and doing Big Bottom. He's a very serious jazz fusion yeah. bass player, you know, oh, and he yeah. practices like three hours a day. And, <laughs> and he went from that to not only doing it, but loving it. And not only loving it, there was a break, and he said the lyric, Jeff was on the mic, talk about mud flaps, my <laughs> girls got him. He, he surrendered. So he went complete surrender all the way Yeah, up. It was a great Good moment. for him. And one time we had Victor Wooten sitting with us, uh, uh-huh. and with me on bass, that made five basses yeah. playing Big Bottom. I, I hope that Derek's Well, we, Derek's we actually, <laughs> I think we have you beat. Yeah. I think we have you beat. When we were in, in Los Angeles, we had Steve Vai, Steve Lukather, uh, Dweezil Zappa, myself, Paul Schaefer, uh, Harry Shear, CJ, Judith Owen, and Will Lee. Harry Shear being Derek Smalls. Yes, Derek Smalls. So we had nine mofos on bass. Oh, you guys were all playing bass. Yeah, That's we were crazy. all playing basses. Yeah, yeah, on Big Bottom, yeah. With, this, with, the, with the infamous uh, pink torpedo floating through the crowd. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Zeppelin blimp. It's, oh, my God. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's, yeah, yeah. you talk about full on. Yeah, the show is so, full on. You have some comedy elements going on with that. Huh? Oh, yes. We actually, we're going to yeah. be at the Will Turn here uh, yeah. in November. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, it's a great show. And, uh, yeah. It's, Any it's, other comedy elements to the show? Um, yeah, throughout the entire yeah. show is comedy. The whole thing, you know, all the, yeah. all the stuff that he's talking about, he does, he does a, like an intro to all the songs, you know, and this great spiel, and and there's there's film and there's a symphony usually playing, you know. So oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's full on symphony and the whole thing. So some places will be playing with a symphony. Other places the the venue probably will not allow you know the, the size of that, but it'll still be great. So uh, yeah, yeah, I mean the the whole show is from start to finish is it's like Spinal yeah. Tap, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. What is the greatest guitar concert you think you've ever seen? Like, or something that just stands out, like something that blew your mind, a guitar player oh, changed you from watching them? Like, I, I, don't know. I was, uh, well, Focus, for one. I was a huge Jan Ackerman fan. Amazing player. Um, yeah, everybody knows the Hocus Pocus, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, uh, whatever, I can't remember yeah. the, the riff. But, um, he was incredible to watch live. He just and again improvisational, just just spilling off the top. Others, uh, Pat Metheny, the original four piece with San right. Lorenzo, that band. Uh, we saw them two nights in a row at the Great American Music Hall. It was amazing to watch him play. There's been so many John McLaughlin, the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Of course, it yep. was all of them that were just you know the the meld of that. It's, it just I don't. There isn't one that stands yeah. out. You know, it's it's it. All of it had meaning to me to to watch yeah. you know uh, david gilmore the the dark side of the moon tour watching him do that uh, and you know and then introducing dogs for an encore which nobody knew what it was they called it you got to be crazy they didn't even have a title for it yet and wow. then he did that solo in that you know and it was just like oh man 
you know so that's great yeah johnny winter there's there, there's there's been so many and you've seen the cats i have i've yeah <laughs> well i was there for all of that you know and so that's why then i'm sure yeah. all that has found its way in my playing at some point you know well i want to actually if we can hear a couple more of your songs like yeah. there's a really cool you have i've noticed you have you're really great at breakdowns there's a lot of wonderful moments in the middle of these songs on your new record okay. that are really hypnotic like for example now flesh wound is a real rocker yes it is probably <laughs> the hardest And there's a great, like, you know, four against six kind of guitar breakdown in the center of that. Yeah. There's a dump to dump. You're talking about that thing that kind of gallops? Oh, I, you, you, oh, oh you're talking about the... Oh, the, the uh. You're talking about that thing? So that could be it. with Because you do that in the solo, too. Yeah. But I think maybe before the solo, you're doing it... Yeah, it's skating over the top of it. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, do you know what's happening rhythmically there? I, would, I could figure it out for you. I don't ever think about that stuff consciously. If you got one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four triplets, but the accents are in different places. And then it recycles. So it goes, what you have to do, you know, you're, you're going. Wait, what's the rhythm underneath? One, two, three. Three, four, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, so it's just like one, two, three, four, yeah, it's just it's just yabba dabba doo, basically. It's kind of a Fred Flintstone riff, yes. Okay, now or Porky Pig, yeah, and the Fred Flintstone cartoon breakdown, Porky Pig, yes, yeah. We talked about the other one that I thought was kind of. Keith Emerson or ELP-ish. Yeah. And then even like these cool triads in Westwood, another sort of a beautiful breakdown. Yeah. You're the king of this stuff. Well, it's for me. It's all yeah. The way I always look at songwriting and soloing, actually, for that matter, is is it all comes down to one thing. What it comes down to is storytelling. Okay, it's not. And so many people I've heard know the alphabet. And they kind of recite the alphabet, but there's no words in the alphabet. It's just scales, right? And it's like no, you got to take the notes out and reform sentences, and then yeah. put a sentence in a paragraph, and have that first paragraph depend on the second paragraph. You know. 
make a story yeah. out of it, right? And and this is what Ronnie Montrose taught me years ago was you know because he was a carpenter by by trade before he was a guitar player he he was a carpenter for Bill Graham, and and he knew to incorporate those carpenter skills on building a song on building a solo where he would start the bottom he was never oh, yeah, afraid yeah. to to start low you know listen I got the fire man it's not it's not up here it's down here man he starts that and so he builds it he puts the foundation and the flooring then he put then he frames the house out then he puts the uh, yeah. you know he'll put the the, uh, the the drywall up and, and then paint it and furnish it you know it's that's what I've kind of kept as my my modus operandi for building a solo and building a song so that you're telling a story and so the characters have to relate somehow you can't just introduce characters and then they just go away yeah. they have to have an arc of some sort you have to hear them at the end or whatever they happen to be to create something but there has to be different scenarios different chapters in the book and each breakdown as you're terming it is a chapter in the book you know yeah. so that it all contributes to a story by the end of that four or five minutes you know and that's so it's that's it's storytelling that's cool I, yeah it's funny i just used that same terminology when i was we, me and the singer from Jefferson Starship, Kathy Richardson, have been working yeah. on a, some of these new songs. Yeah. It's like, I don't want that solo. That one doesn't tell the story. Well, I want to see, play it again. <laughs> that's exactly, but see, that's exactly what you want. That's, you're yeah. on the right track, man. And that's what, you know, like I said, unfortunately, people are just reciting the alphabet. Here yeah. comes your doggy. She's the cutest little, what do you call it, a mini whippet? It's a, no, it's a, an Italian greyhound. Like yeah. to me, it looks like the whippet we had. It is well, it's, but it is smaller. Yeah, yeah. It, no, whippets are about uh, twice the size of these, and they're not that big. No, they're she's not. like, come here. Here you are. All right, you win. Cute. I'm taking photos here. There you go. So yeah, you know, just for a second, I, it reminds me of some Ronnie Montrose Gamma stuff and yeah. you're a Bay Area guy so you probably remember all that stuff. Oh yeah, well. There's this, I mean not necessarily every song but the scene and they were great. Yeah. And there's this one song I was like. Something like that. That's like the synth line. Uh-huh. And he, and then at the end of the song, I don't even know if that's the right key. We'll find out when I fly it in. Maybe I'll fly it in. We got to throw in a little Montrose yeah, to yeah, tribute absolutely. to him. Yep. This solo that he does on there, which I don't know if it's one of his well-known solos, which uh, I think might make it interesting to hear. Yeah. He just builds it up. It just starts yeah. at nothing, and then by the end, he gets into some weird looping pedal or something. Yeah. It's just... I mean, that's, that's, yeah, it was an invaluable lesson to me because it really did show me how things progress. They don't just continue, you know, because a lot of guys, it's, it's like a, it's like a, they're running in a circle, like on a track as yeah. opposed to a straight line through landscape, 
you know, yeah. and because you, you know, every time you do that, it's kind of like it's kind of like the soloing in a track is kind of like when you watch the cartoons where you have Jinx chasing uh, Pixie and Dixie, and the same clock and chair go by on the hall. You know, they're, yeah, they're yeah. running out the and like yeah, they got a lot of clocks and chairs in this house. You <laughs> know, same tree, goes same by tree over goes over by. Yeah, it's like <laughs> no, let's have let's have a, a you know. Uh, a one where you, you the landscape is constantly morphing and changing that it renews your interest as a listener oh, you know. man you got the great metaphors yeah it's just that's that's what it is i mean it really is that's that's you know that's yeah that's pretty tough i mean i can't only imagine because these were your friends keith ronnie very close both of them took yeah. their own lives because maybe i can't compare i would i don't even know them personally or but i guess both of them were having trouble with their music at the end of their lives, and it was so painful for them yeah. to deal with that. Yeah. What's, how has this been for you, and what have you well, learned it, about it, this? Well, it was, it, with Ronnie, it was a question of a lot of things. You know, and, you know his, his past was very, he was haunted by his, his childhood. Um, he had, he had um, I guess, came clean with my, uh, to my mom about this a long time ago on a phone. I was, uh, we were living up north. And my mom went into the other room. She never does that on a phone. She took the phone in the other room, and I knew it was Ronnie. And she came out about an hour and a half later, and I said, is everything okay? And she goes, she was shaking her head, just point, boy, Ronnie has really got to, you know, he's, and he, he promised me never to tell you. He didn't, he didn't want me to know. And I said, I don't need to know. But he confessed it all to my mom, you know, because his my mom was like his secondary mother out here, and he felt safe with her, and he had to tell somebody. You know, so I know that he was he was besieged by a lot of demons. You know, like uh, stuff he it, went through as a child. I think it's that that, that often will formulate yeah. your opinion of yourself later on in life. You know, and that's that's the thing. It's hard to escape sometimes. So you know that that was an issue with him. Plus, he had some arthritic issues with his hand, and probably didn't feel as as viable as he once was. Um, and with Keith, it was the same thing with his hand. You know, he had uh, he had issues with that. The um, yeah. Uh, and and we've all read about that. that yeah, he was, had nerves. Yeah, he had nerve damage his hand where the, these two fingers would go. No, the first would, and would collapped underneath the the, the oh, last the, two fingers. And so the last be, two fingers. Yeah, you know, the last two fingers. Would, that, those are connected to a separate nerve. Yeah, and that's that's the, the one. The funny bone nerve. Yeah. the ulnar nerve. And the thing is, they went in to operate because on his hand, and the surgeon cut cut accidentally cut that, and that's what happened. So, oh my God, you're killing and, me. And then trying to recapture all the stuff he did with four. Or three, five fingers, and the thing is, it's it's uh, it was uh, I ended up trying. I, I tried to do as, it, it cover as much as I could uh, mm-hmm. stuff that he couldn't cop. I would uh, say, look, we've got a quartet now. We should be able to, you know, let me take some of those lines you can't can't do, and let's make it into a quartet thing. And he was he loved to do. That. He loved to vamp or loved to comp. He said, man, take yeah. this, you know. Uh, and so I would rearrange the songs to to make sure that he was able to play the stuff that he was and he was great at that stuff yeah, but some of the harder stuff i would take you know and and it actually sounded good because it was done in a different way if you've got four pieces don't <laughs> treat it like a trio you know yeah in- incorporate the incorporate it into a new paradigm you know and which is what we did you know but i just think there, there were a lot of issues that came up that last week you know some of which i i, I can't get into but but um, again, he was just concerned with letting his fans down, you know, because he he was in competition with his 25-year-old prodigy self where he had full capability of his hands, and he always felt that he was selling people short. And would, yeah. they would have easily given him a pass. 
They just wanted to see him, you know. And he was constantly practicing. He practiced in his hotel room. He practiced backstage. You know, he, he was always practicing. Yeah. Uh, never slacked. He was always had a, he had a portable keyboard with him that he played, you know, that he brought on the plane and all of that to keep himself limber and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it was just uh, the series of unfortunate events, you know, just happened where uh, it just didn't it just didn't turn out, you know. And, That's and, tough, man. Yeah, it was tough, you know. Oh. But the the upside was the fact that we did a, an incredible uh, tribute concert in uh, Los Angeles uh, that May. And yeah, phenomenal. And, and hopefully that'll be out at some point. It's it's incredible to watch and the level of players on it is probably never going to happen again so uh yeah at some point that'll happen yeah i've read about that concert but you know haven't seen it but yeah, yeah. hopefully that will yes it, it uh it will come up well yeah. before we go yeah i noticed you have a great music book on your on your site yeah which is it's called markboniamusic.com. Yep, that's right. M-A-R-C. M-A-R-C. <laughs> How many times have you said that in your B-O-N-I-L-L-A. life? B-O-N-I-L-L-A. <laughs> I get the first one misspelled and the last one mispronounced. I'm cursed both sides, but yeah. Mark, Mark Bonilla. Bonilla. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, a good tele, it's a good telemarketer, uh, you know, <laughs> Screen. filter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, markboniamusic.com. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's called Balance of Power, and it's, it's a book that has – all the stuff that I've, I've learned on the street, basically from from college, when I took yeah. some you know uh, some theory all the way out to now, and things that have occurred and 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 approaches to playing and where this stuff comes from, where it doesn't you know I it's all it, a lot of this stuff is never in a it was never in a book it was never on a video yeah. because it's stuff that you just amass from just playing and doing and learning and to you know keeping your eyes and your ears open and your mouth shut. And I've tried to yeah. cut through a lot of this for players. Like here, you know, yeah. I put the band situation, what to do in a band, you know, like we were talking about, listening, all these different things that you have to be, you have to watch for and if you want a successful band. There's all kinds of stuff on, on, on modes in there, but I've done is try to clear out all of the extraneous knowledge that you really don't need and just keep the essential knowledge. It's not a shortcut, it's a straight line to, to you know, improving yeah. your playing. You know, so it's and and again, the last part of the the book is on where the inspiration comes from, what to ch- what to channel, how to how to lock into it, and where he really comes from. And my view is that none of this stuff comes from you. Everybody thinks it does. Well, eventually have a problem with writer's block because if you think it comes from you, then it's a finite source of material, Good much point. like taking a canteen of water into the desert. Right, some point that canteen is going to go dry. Right. But if you yeah. think of creativity and inspiration as a river that runs alongside that desert, all you have to do is go over there and dip the cup because the stuff flows through you. I'm sure that you've, you've, you've had uh, incidences more than once where you've played something, you had no idea how, what you were playing, or you've written something, you've gone back and go, God, I don't even remember writing that. I don't even remember where that came from or if I could write that again. I, I have no idea. That's because yeah. it didn't. It comes through you. You're, they're muses or universal consciousness, whatever you want to call it. You just have to open up your channel for that and to keep it keep it flowing. That has to do with, with the soloing, any of that stuff, where it's a constant flow. I, I think of it as, as firemen up in the loft that are waiting for a fire alarm, and this <laughs> or this is like, oh, it's Keyboard, a fire alarm. They come fire. down a pole, your job, keep the fire engine tuned up. Now, I'm not the kind of guy that wants there to be a lot of fires, but I to- I'm totally with you in everything you just said, but sometimes I feel like 
the river's dry or I don't can't find the river. Yeah, or, you got to open yourself the, up more. So how, yeah, how do you? How does one? You you have to trust it. It, it, it. It's like they all often said: the secret of writing is writing. In other words, the more you write, the more alarms you set for guys to come down, or your firemen to come down and and yeah. address the fire. And uh, I, I've as much stuff as I've written in my whole career, I've never experienced writer's block. And that's not because I'm more brilliant than anyone else or I'm more inspired or I'm gifted. It has nothing to do with that. It only has to do with the fact that I know where it comes from. And I'm always, my conduit is wide open. And eventually, you keep going that, you'll find something that you want. You, but you have to trust it 100%. If you trust it 75%, yeah. you'll have moments where you go, ah, I just don't have anything left. No, there will always the river's there. You may have to hike a little further to get to it, but it's there. Dude, you, you know. Once again, bringing the metaphors. Well, it's, yeah, someone <laughs> told me king. I'm the king of metaphor. I, to but me, it's just I'm like. I'm a metaphor guy, too, so yeah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's what it is. It's yeah. it's it's very much like that. And I, I only, the only thing that's in the book are the things that have worked, not the yeah. things that don't work. And I've cut off all the yeah. fat of modes and things that you really don't need. If you look at a, a soloing in one way, which is just basically, if you know a major scale, maybe a blues scale, you can solo over any chord you want. I don't care how, how altered it is or any of that. You don't need to clog your mind up with clothes yeah. that you don't wear. You know, it's always right. like you get in the closet, you go, God, where, I never knew I had this. So I don't need this. And you get rid of all the clothes you don't wear so you can get to the yeah. T-shirt you do wear. You know. Now, speaking of that, you also teach, right? I mean, yeah. People could find you on the same website. Yeah, yeah, they can find me there. Maybe yeah, a Skype a, lesson or yeah, Skype lessons. They're in yes, the area. Maybe yeah. get oh, in here. Yeah, I have students that come here. As a matter of fact, you're playing one of my students' guitars. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, um, thanks, thanks for bringing it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I yeah I do because I, I I just you know I taught years ago and then I got so involved in doing all this stuff I I just stopped and now. I feel like I need to kind of get back into it, and there's another kind of generation of player yeah. that, that unfortunately doesn't have it. They do and they don't have the same influences that you and I had growing up. When you and I were growing right. up in the '60s and the '70s, you could you could listen to a guitar player for maybe four or five bars. You knew who it was. You yep. knew it was Jimmy Page. It was Brian May, uh, David Gilmore, Jimi Hendrix, Robbie Krager, uh, Steve Howe, Rick Derringer, Johnny Winter. You yeah. knew. From on the minute, if it was a Mike Bloomfield solo, you you knew right away like who it was because each person had their individual tone and all of that. Nowadays, when you have so many plugins that everyone shares, I was going to say like that 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 are great, but they end up everybody sounds uniform, and you don't get as much character as you you used to get. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that your tone and your and your 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 sound comes from your uh, your combination of instruments that you have, the amp that you have, the guitar that you have, the string gauge that you have, plus your your development. But I, I think that it's it's important to listen to a lot of those classic tracks because you really hear again the storytelling. And what I've done in my book is I've given like in the back is fifty examples of listening, suggested listening, which are on the website under links and i explain them in the book and then i give you all of the you can go right down them all these you know what album they're from what the title is who the artist is and listen to the techniques that they're using so it's not just here play this stuff no it's here here's the stuff to play listen to how this guy is doing exactly that 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 particular you know principle yeah. or whatever it is so you get you get to listen to something that's exactly Rep, you know, awesome. representative of that so that's what the book's about it's it's you know it's about 130 pages and it gives you've got all the chords you need all of that stuff but it's just 
the absolute essential stuff that you need so you don't need to clog your brain up with <clears throat> with uh, unnecessary knowledge so that you because your hands take orders from your brain so if your yeah. brain is confused your hands are gonna go what are you what are, what, are you, what are we doing up there hey don't bug yeah. me I'm trying to figure <laughs> this out well you look like assholes down here don't know come on yeah. you know so you keep your brain clear you know and and try go actually from the heart to the hands that's the easiest way to go yeah, that's the that's always the goal for me. Yeah, yeah. Connect the heart to the hands. Yeah, babe. Well, cool, man. You want to take it out on some rock candy? All right. Oh, we need slap for this. A little slap. Oh yeah. We yeah, need yeah. some slap. There we go. This is for Ronnie Montrose. Singer, man. You have to go to the end because that's the live version. Right on, Mark Madia. Thank you for being on the show. No guitar is safe. Episode 96. Keep it alive to you, 95.